Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Over the past several weeks, I've been talking about worldviews and how we can know things. A theme verse for all of that has been Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. A A quote that I gave you by Greg Bonson is this, the proof of the Christian worldview is that without it, you could not prove anything. And so I referenced a video series last week, and I'll share that in the link below today. Um, another sort of uh, another great book on this theme of without the Christian worldview, you couldn't know anything. Um, and that's why I believe the Christian worldview to be the only you know way to know truth. Uh, a great book is by Jason Lyle, L-I-S-L-E, Jason Lyle, and it's called The Ultimate Proof of Creation. And so the reason I spent uh, three weeks talking about worldviews and how we know things in this beginnings series, instead of just jumping right into Genesis 1-1, is I had to sort of lay the groundwork for why I hold to the Christian worldview. That's going to be really important in me explaining why I believe things I believe about Genesis. So I had to do all that beforehand. Uh, just to remind you, in the Christian worldview, our ultimate source of authority and truth is the Bible. So we start with the Bible. We we don't start with what science says. The scientific method cannot be relied upon apart from God. God's word is over science. The Bible is not to be squeezed into current scientific consensus. It rules over scientists. The same way with philosophy. I start with the Bible, not with philosophy. Logic and reason are not objective unless we consider them as being gifts from God. Think about this. The ability to use logic and reason are gifts from God. Logic flows from his very nature. So logic should not be used to lead some people to believe in God and some people to reject him. Rejecting God on the basis of logic is ultimately illogical. So I start with the Bible, not what the scientific consensus of the you know current day is, not what philosophy says, and not what my personal feelings or preferences are. A heart not aligned with God is vulnerable to all kinds of deceit. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So I always want to start with the Bible as my ultimate authority, and hopefully I've I've clarified that over the last few episodes. All right, so today I'm going to be merging this worldview discussion uh, as well as getting into like an introduction of Genesis. So based on the Christian worldview, how do I approach the Bible? And then we'll talk about you know Genesis, like uh, some of the basics on who wrote Genesis and what's the setting that it was written in, that sort of thing. And then next week, we'll jump into Genesis 1-1 and go from there. All right, so you can always connect with me by email, bearchristianity at gmail.com. You can message me on Instagram at therealbearmartin, and I'm on Twitter as well. That's at bear4, the number four, Christos. All right, now... Today's little segment of A Bear in the Woods, A Bear in the Woods is is where I talk about random things in life. And this has been on my mind lately because school started about a month ago, and I thought I hated homework as a kid. But I hate homework a lot more as a parent. (laughs) And, And probably if some of you are parents out there, 
with children that you're helping do homework every night, I'm, I'm thinking you probably agree with me. Doing homework is bad enough, but when, when you're the student and you're doing the homework, you know, you're trying your best and you're you're trying to get it done, that sort of thing. But watching someone do homework, it, it's like as an adult, I know how much faster this actually could go. And so it, it's like, it's kind of like watching someone work a computer who doesn't know how to work a computer or watching someone type who doesn't know how to type. It, it <laughs> It's just like, here, give me the pencil and let me fill out these questions. And then so we can go play, you know? Um, so that's, that's what is so frustrating for me about doing homework. Another thing is uh, I'm a perfectionist. And so when, when I, when my kids are doing homework, especially like a project, one of my daughters had to do a project on the seven days of creation. Now that should tell you right there, she goes to a Christian school. Imagine a public school, you know, assigning a project on the seven days of creation. But anyway, um, so, you know, she's got her poster board out and, and she did a great job, really creative idea. She, she just took pictures of, of different things in nature and, and laid them out. So I was proud of her. But when she's writing on the poster board, you know, I can see as she's writing out the days, she's like writing crooked, you know, it's like going slowly down. And, uh, uh, you know, my, my perfectionist mind was, uh, was driving me nuts. I'm like, you know what? We probably should measure all of this out and draw little lines. That way you can stay on it. And, uh, and my daughter and my wife are like, no, it's fine. We got it. You know? <laughs> so I, I ended up, my wife told me, you can just walk away, Bear. You can just go over there and I'll handle it. And that's that one of the reasons I love my wife. But anyway, when my kids complain about doing homework, I say the same thing that I say before I have to give them a spanking. I say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Okay, my approach to the Bible is from the Christian or biblical worldview. I believe the Bible is God's revelation, and it reveals the nature and character of God, the origin of all created things, man's problem of sin, and God's redemptive plan. Now, there's a lot of different ways that people could summarize the Bible, but those are some, some basic thoughts there. The Bible is the ultimate authority. It is theanustas. It is God-breathed. I have an episode about that um, you know, look way, oh man, way back now. But um, it is, the, the Bible is God breathed. So when the Lord speaks, there is no greater authority. Hebrews 6, 13 says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So there's no greater authority than the Lord. So the Bible as being God breathed, the very words of God, there, there's no greater authority than the Bible. John Frame says that he's a Christian theologian. In his book, Salvation Belongs to the Lord, he says this about the Bible, and this is in the, the introduction paragraph in chapter five, if you have that book. Anyway, he says, God's written word has the same power, authority, and divinity as the divine voice from heaven and the word of the prophets and apostles. Its authority implies that it is infallible and inerrant, end quote. Now, what is infallibility? The, the, what, is, what does he mean by the Bible is infallible? Uh, the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms, great little resource, it, it defines infallible this way. It says, the characteristic of being incapable of failing to accomplish a predetermined purpose. All right. So, and then further on, it goes the Bible will not fail in its ultimate purpose of revealing God and the way of salvation to humans. 
So the, the we're saying the Bible is infallible because God has a purpose that the Bible is supposed to accomplish. And when I say the Bible is infallible, I'm saying that God's purpose will you know, come to pass. It will happen. So the Bible will be perfectly capable of doing exactly what God wanted it to do. Now, that so that's that's what I mean when the Bible is infallible. Now, what do we mean by saying the Bible is inerrant? This is a quote from Charles Ryrie in his uh, Systematic Theology book. He says, the Bible is inerrant in that it tells the truth, and it does so without error in all parts and with all its words. Now, what we've got to consider here, though, is the truth claims in the Bible, they must be taken within their context. For instance, if if it's poetry, then you know we've got to consider it as poetry. 2 Samuel 22, 32 says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Obviously, this does not mean that God is physically a rock. This is poetry. And so we have to take the truth claims in poetry as poetry. Also, a common thing in Scripture, especially when Jesus is teaching, Jesus uses hyperbole. So hyperbole is a a literary device used to exaggerate for a certain effect. All right, so Matthew 5, 29, uh, Jesus says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus telling us there to hate our father and mother? No, he is using hyperbole. And so we've, we've got to take all of that into consideration when we're talking about the truth claims of the Bible. In no way am I trying to dodge or weave or, or be soft on the Bible's authority as absolutely true. So do not misunderstand me, you know, other Christians out there who think I'm, I'm trying to come at the Bible as, um, as being weak in any way. It is my ultimate source of authority, and I will not use, you know, uh, poetry or hyperbole or whatever to try to dodge some of the tougher claims uh, made by non-Christians against the Bible. So I'm not trying to be soft in any way there. Now, if you reject the basic beliefs about the Bible being the infallible and inerrant Word of God, I do not believe you are a true Christian. How can you reject the absolute truth of the Bible, and but but at the same time profess to be a Christian? Get this: all knowledge to be a Christian is based on the truth of the Bible. So if you're going to say, "Well, you know, I don't really believe that. This part's probably false." then you might as well consider the whole thing false. You, you've got to take the whole Bible or none at all. If, you, if you're starting to pick and choose what parts of the Bible you think are true and which are, you think are, are false or misleading, then just get rid of the whole thing. You're, you're not a true Christian. You are cutting off the very thing that is supporting you. You're like knocking the foundation out from under yourself. So you you know the Christian must hold that the the Bible is infallible and inerrant. It is the inspired word of God. In Genesis 3:1 it says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Here the very first temptation by Satan is, did God really say that? And so you know as a Christian 
We believe the Bible is God's word. And so when someone comes along and says, ah, did God, is that really God's word? Did God really say that? Or isn't it just a, a bunch of men who wrote over the centuries and then it all got compiled together? No, it is God's word. God spoke the Bible. It is God breathed, theanustas. And so we, as a Christian, you must accept it that way. That That is the Christian worldview. So let's talk about who wrote the book of Genesis. Who's, who's the author? There are two authors for every book of the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit and the physical you know, man that wrote it. Second um, Peter 1.21, very popular verse when we talk about who wrote the Bible. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's the difference in the Christian worldview versus the non-Christian worldview. In the non-Christian worldview, the Bible is a collection of man's writings. So they would say that the author is some guy, you know, maybe Moses, maybe Paul, whatever. Um, but all of that is up is up for grabs. All of that is up to question because it's just a collection of man's writings that we've you know, has been passed down over the centuries. We don't know what's true or, or not. So we have to analyze it and, and question every little detail. So it's okay to question the authority, the truthfulness, the reliability. It's just another book written by man. That's the non-Christian worldview. Now, in the Christian worldview, the Christian God exists. He is the creator of all things, and he is Lord. So let me build this thought out here. John Frame, I've already mentioned his book, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. In his systematic theology book, he talks about God is, he says he is Lord, and he talks about these two different factors. The Lord is transcendent, and so he is a he is a ruler over all things. He is sovereign. So if we think about the the Lord of a of a nation, the king of a nation, he is completely in control and has all authority. So as Lord, God is completely unique, and he is in a different category than his creation. He is transcendent. He is different, holy, unique. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So the Lord is transcendent, but he's also imminent. That's the other one that, that John Frame brings out. He says he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. The Lord is present with us. So he's not present with us like Big Brother um, in, in Orwell's novel. He's not present with us like Santa Claus. You know, you better watch out. You better not cry. You know, he, he's not, God's not like that. And here's a side note. Be very careful, Christian parents, that you do not make Christmas a works-based holiday. Okay, so you know, you constantly, you know, starting before Thanksgiving, probably, um, you know, your kid messes up. And, oh, oh, you better watch out now. Santa Claus is watching. You know, be very careful that you don't turn the whole, you know, Christmas season, which is about supposed to be about Jesus, the ultimate Christmas gift. It is a gift of grace. None of us are good enough to to deserve God's gift of grace. And so that's the whole purpose of Christmas. And then if we turn it into this works-based holiday, then we're destroying what Christmas should be all about. So, you know, I I'm I'm neutral in regards to, you know, some Christian families celebrating Santa Claus and others not that, you know, that's your own decision, but my um my urging to you would be don't make it works based it's it's got to be about grace and so anyway that that's complete side note 
But hopefully that is um, that is that is edifying to Christian families out there. So so God again, He's He's imminent. He's present with us, but not like Big Brother and not like Santa Claus. He's active. God is active in our lives. He's involved. An example of this would be like like a CEO. Um, some CEOs you never see them. They're they're just some you know. If you walk into this big corporate building, maybe their picture is above the the desk or whatever. And so they're they're only transcendent. That that it's some you know you never see them, but you know that they're there somewhere in the top floor of that building. They're transcendent only. But a difference would be a CEO where you see them constantly. They're they're all the time moving around, interacting with the people of that company. There is a transcendence about that person. There's an authority and a rulership that that comes with them, um, but they are also imminent. They are active and, and right alongside the people in that company. That, that's both transcendence and imminence. And so God is that way. He is transcendent. He is holy. He's unique. He deserves that respect, but he's also imminent. He's present with us. In Exodus 3, 11 and 12, this is when uh, God is speaking to Moses through the burning bush. It says this, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God is with Moses, and then he's with the people of Israel. He was with them in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Matthew one twenty three, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus in the incarnation becomes man and identifies with us. Jesus is with us. He's right alongside with us. And then the Holy Spirit is in us. So God the Father is for us, Jesus is with us, and the Holy Spirit is in us. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So God is both, he is Lord, so he is transcendent, but he's also imminent. And this imminence means that he is active in our lives and he has a mission to reveal himself. And this is where we get God revealing himself to mankind in three different ways, through nature, through Jesus Christ, and through the Bible. So his his imminence means he's present with us and he is he is active in our lives revealing himself to us. First through nature, Romans 1:19 through 20, I've mentioned this verse a lot lately. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He reveals himself in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. 
He is, that is the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So so if God could become a man and interact with us, what would that look like? Exactly like Jesus. So how can we as humans know anything about the nature and character of God? God reveals that to us. And in this Hebrews 1 verse, it's it. He, God reveals himself to us through Jesus, who became man, yet is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Now, he reveals himself through nature, Jesus and the Bible, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God, that's that word theanustas, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In Matthew 22, 31, Jesus says, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? So the Bible is clearly the word of God, and, it, and God has given us that and expects us to know it. The Bible is different than any other book. So in today's age, we have more reason to trust the Bible was reliably passed down through the generations. We have more reason to trust that than any other generation before, yet we question the Bible more and more and more. In the Christian worldview, we believe that it's God's very purpose because he is imminent and desires to be present with us and make himself known among us, it is God's purpose to give us the Bible. That is where the Christian trust lies. It is it is not actually in that the scribes, you know, we're not trusting that some scribe in the Middle Ages copied the Bible correctly. Uh, now, textual criticism, I've done some episodes on that. That is useful in comparing the different manuscripts and seeing where scribes maybe made some errors and making sure that we have as accurate as possible what has been passed down through the centuries. So I'm not against that um, that study. However, my underlying presupposition is that it is God's very purpose, his decree, that we should have his word. Therefore, my trust is not in the that a scribe didn't fall asleep, you know, copying the word of God. My trust is that God has preserved the Bible through the centuries so that I could have a copy and read it and know about him. So God's purpose is to communicate to me through the Bible. Now, we also hear from God by way of the Holy Spirit, but that can be abused greatly. So when we when we question is uh, is this word from the Holy Spirit? If someone you know comes to you and says I have a word from the Holy Spirit, everybody that that's completely arbitrary. Uh, we talked about that last episode. Anybody can say I have a word from the Holy Spirit. So how do we know? We must look to the Bible. The Bible is the Bible connects what we can see and read to what we cannot. That being the Holy Spirit. So that is the connection point, that the Bible is how God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. We read the Bible and the Holy Spirit teaches us. Costi Hinn is Benny Hinn's nephew. So Benny Hinn is a, a, a false preacher, healer, that you know, travels the country and ha- has these big conferences where he claims to be healing people. And, and so he claims to be doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Costi, his nephew, used to work with him. It's like a lot of people in the family uh, were part of that business. And Costi left, and now he's a, a faithful pastor. And so this is a, a tweet. Um, I'm not sure. This I saw this maybe within the last few weeks, and I saved it. Uh, Costi Hinn says this, quote, and uh, by the way, he just wrote a book on the Holy Spirit. Quote, when you let the word of God dwell in you richly, that's a, a reference to Colossians 3.16, you will find yourself making godly decisions, thinking biblical thoughts, and stirred with desire for the things of God. You cannot be led by the Spirit if you do not love God's word. So it is God's purpose to make himself known to us through his word, and we study God's word, and that's how the Spirit guides and directs us. So we are not saying that Christians only need the Bible. That you know, we in in my all my episodes about Roman Catholicism, I tried to be clear on that. I am not saying that we just take our Bible and go out on a, in a field somewhere and we're all by ourselves. No, we trust that the Holy Spirit guides us as we study God's Word. So when we come to the the question of who wrote Genesis, we first, in, in the Christian worldview, we first assume that the Holy Spirit is is the is an author, and then the Holy Spirit is using Moses to write Genesis. Now, there's lots of debate in non-Christian worldviews about who wrote Genesis. That there's you know all, all kinds of different theories. Um, I trust Jesus when it comes to who wrote the Torah. That is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Mark 10, 2 through 9, some of the Pharisees come up to Jesus and it says this, and the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning, beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from from Genesis 2. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, the Pharisees come up to Jesus, they ask him a question, and Jesus says, what did Moses say? And then Jesus references the, the Torah. So I believe Moses is the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, this is a a major point here when it comes to interpreting the Bible. In the Christian worldview, the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. That's what I just did. You know, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, the Torah? Jesus says Moses wrote them. So I'm going to take that. I'm going to trust the Bible first before I I go, you know, trusting a non-Christian scholar on on what they think uh, or who they think wrote the Torah. So in in the Christian worldview, the Bible is God-breathed and he has a purpose for every word. So the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible. One of the things that I use the most when I'm studying a passage of the Bible are cross-references. And so if you don't have a Bible with cross-references, there's lots of, you can get on the internet and read the Bible that way, and and it'll uh, allow you to look up the cross-references really simple. Um, I have a program called Logos Bible Software that makes that really easy, or a lot of Bibles have cross-references. It just takes a while with your physical Bible because you're having to look at really tiny print and then flip over to that verse and then flip back. And so it it can take some time, but cross-references are so important in properly interpreting God's Word. Um, So who wrote the Torah? From a non-Christian worldview, there's lots of theories. A a popular 
theory is called the documentary hypothesis. I took a intro to the Bible class in college, and this is the theory that that our professor uh, put forth, and it's the uh, documented, documentary hypothesis, or JEDP, and those all stand for four different sources, basically, uh, that were written over you know at different time periods in the nation of Israel, and then eventually those those writings were all sort of combi- com- compiled or mixed together, and that's that's where we have the Torah that we have today. Um, so that that's a popular one, but again, I believe Moses is the one who wrote the Bible. Now. Let me say this, though. Moses is the primary author of the Torah. So in the Torah, at the the very end, there's some verses about the death of Moses. So obviously, Moses didn't write that part. Uh, A lot of people think Joshua uh, added that part. So Moses is the primary author, and then there were obviously some um, some there's some editing or like uh, renaming things to keep it uh, keep it current. Let me give you an example. There's there's some some names of places were updated for the Jewish reader in Genesis fourteen fourteen. Uh, this is a verse in the middle of a story about Abraham rescuing his nephew Lot. Lot was captured, and so Abraham is pursuing his captors, and it says he pursued him as far as. Dan. Now, this location known as Dan was likely not named that until after the time of Moses. So archaeological evidence shows us that this area was likely named Laish or Leshem, and because it was it was conquered by the tribe of Dan. So Moses dies, and then Joshua leads the nation of Israel into the promised land and they conquer the land. So the tribe of Dan is who conquered this location, but obviously this all took place after the death of Moses. And so Abraham, who's way before Moses, you know, if if he pursued Lot's captors to Dan, it probably wasn't called Dan when, you know, in in Abraham's time. All right. And so somebody came along and edited that so that the the modern reader would know, oh, okay, this is the location Abraham traveled to. So the phrase from Dan to Beersheba is found several times in the Bible, and it's used to denote the full vertical length of the promised land. The, the the nation of Israel. So it would kind of be like me saying, we drove from DC to LA. So Americans would know that that is the entire horizontal length of the United States. And so this this location of Dan was likely an update. Now, does that so so Moses is the primary author of the Torah, but there have been some or there likely have been some updates along the way. I don't think that weakens the Bible at all. It's just it's just renaming different locations and clarifying some things for later readers. So there's the authorship of Genesis and and why I believe what I believe. As far as the setting, Moses wrote the Torah in uh, after the exodus from Egypt. And so God visits them, him on Mount Sinai. Um, he gives Moses the laws that the nation of Israel are to follow. And then they're, they're in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, and so so different things like the creation days align with these Mosaic laws, like the Sabbath rest is, is part of their laws. So Moses, in writing the Torah, is is teaching the Israelites about Yahweh, the Lord. And so there, there's a few foundational statements. When b- before God leads Israel out of slavery in Egypt, when God speaks to Moses, He introduces Himself as "I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." Now, after the Exodus from Egypt, the Lord will introduce Himself to the Israelites before He gives them commands. He will say, "I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt." So in uh, again, this Bible software I have, it allows me to search very 
specific things. So in the search bar, I put, I am the Lord, brought, and Egypt. Those three things, I am the Lord, brought, and Egypt. And it allowed me to search for verses that only have all three of those items. And the results, in 12 times in just in the first five books of the Old Testament, 12 times God says this to the nation of Israel, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's a way of him identifying himself. So the setting for the writing of the Torah is that is that Moses is teaching the Israelites about who the Lord is. And 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 the first thing we're going to discover is the Lord is the creator of all things. So next week we'll jump into Genesis 1:1 and beyond. So let me read that verse in closing. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. <laughs>